Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, Carthus Creek. Really glad that again you're here this morning on this cold but beautiful day. And again, a huge welcome to our online community, wherever you might be uh, today. Well, we're done our Christmas break, and so we're going back to our series in Romans, Back to Basics. And so if you have scripture with you electronically or in hard copy, I'd love you to turn to Romans chapter 7 this morning, and that's where we're going to engage. I think every one of us sitting here this morning or watching or listening has people in our lives that we looked up to as Christians. We would never uh, use the phrase super Christian. It's a little cheesy, but really that's how we view them. These are people that when we think about them or are around them, we're impressed. They seem to walk with God in a different way. They hear God or, or, or they know scripture in a different way or they pray differently or they're able to do things in Jesus' name that we, we just can't. These are different people around us that we, we, just, we are impressed by because of their walk with Jesus. For generations, of course, the ultimate name that was always used was Billy Graham. I don't know who it is in your life. Maybe it's a known person. Maybe it's someone very quiet behind the scenes. But whoever that person is, or persons that is, all of us celebrate sometimes that. Now, none of us would celebrate if they fell. None of us would be joyful if they had a moral failure or they walked away from the faith. I mean, that's a devastating thing when that takes place. And it happens uh, from time to time. But every one of us if we got over the uncomfortability of the moment, would find great joy and relief, there's the word, if they talked about how they struggled in their faith. Every time someone we look up to as a follower of Jesus talks openly and candidly about struggle, we suddenly feel relief because we know suddenly we're in the same boat as them. The first time it happened to me, well, it happened many times, but one that was really, really prevalent was I was 16 years old. I was overseas with Operation Mobilization. 2,000 teenagers and young adults had gathered together. We were going to go to about 20 countries to tell people about Jesus. We were gathered together, and this English speaker got up, and he was preaching. He was a very well-known uh, Christian leader in the UK and, of course, in Europe. And halfway through his message, suddenly he openly started talking about his struggles with lust. At that, that moment, that, that moment, I felt relief because I suddenly realized that this great leader, and he was and is still today, struggled like I did. An 18-year-old beside me broke down in tears and ran out of the hall. I didn't know him well. I went after him, and, and I said, are you okay? And I prayed with him. He said, that's me too. That's me too. No one in leadership, he said, ever has talked that way in all of my church experience. None of us rejoice in sin as Christians. We never should. But there is something powerful when we talk about mutual struggle because it begins to erode a deceptive idea that some people are more spiritual than others. And that is exactly what this passage is. And I thank God that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he led Paul to put this into the book of Romans. See, this is the portrait of a mature, God-loving, but struggling Christian. This is a personal encounter this morning. It is emotional, it is raw, it is honest, it is powerful because it is true life experience talked out in public. Never forget that though Paul had met Jesus in a vision, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament and understood grace, he struggled too. He fell back into the trap of trying to please God, not by the law anymore, but by his own strength. 
He talked to Jesus personally. He had more theology and passion and sacrifice, understanding and vision than probably any of us sitting or watching here today. And yet, he also struggled. What good news for the rest of us. We think that mature, strong Christians are always joy-filled, always excited, always gifted, always ready to take the next hill for God and for kingdom and eternity. But that's a superficial way of looking at people of faith. And it's a terribly superficial way of looking and reading Scripture. And by the way, it sets up many of us here today for failure. Listen to what I'm about to say. Presumption always leads to death. It never brings clarity, but truth brings life. Now, before the Christmas break, we ended in Romans chapter 6, and we heard these earth-shattering words that changed the way that God and humanity related. Here are the words, Romans 6, 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, you're under grace. By obeying the law, summarized by the Ten Commandments, we are never able to achieve right standing before God. We are never able to get relationship with the living God of heaven and earth by what we do. We will never do that. See, many of us sitting here today, before we embrace Jesus in faith for salvation, when we would read the law, it would stir up an awareness of sin in us. It actually brought wrath upon us, and actually, as we're going to learn, it increased sin in us. Now today, Paul is going to talk about his own story. He's going to gather up all these understandings and address them directly. Everything he's going to talk about today is his struggles and the law and God and grace all in one chapter. He says this in Romans 7.1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those that know the law, that the law has authority over someone as long as that person lives? All of us are under the power of the law as long as we live. Whether it's the written version, the Ten Commandments, or natural law, which Paul outlined in Romans 1, which God has put into nature and the soul of every human being. We are all under the law until we die. Now, at this point, we should have some confusion in our audience. Pain, and here's a good word that everyone likes on Sunday morning, despair. Think about that statement. All of us are under the law until we die, Paul says. Let me just give a refresher course this morning on the Ten Commandments. And let's see how you've done today, or in the last week, or the last month with them. I took it from the message. Number one, no other gods before me, only me. Anything that you put of value before the living God is an idol. Number two, no carved gods of any shape or size or form. Whatever things that fly or things that walk or swim, don't bow down to them. Don't serve them because I am God, your God. Uh, no using my God, the name of my God, your God, in curses or silly banter. God will not put up with a reverent use of his name. Observe the Sabbath day. Uh, keep it holy. Work six days and do everything you need to do. But on the seventh, it's Sabbath to God, your God. Here's the next one, honor your mom and dad so you'll live a long time in the land your God, your God is giving you. No murder, everyone, no adultery, no stealing, no lying about your neighbor ever, no lusting after your neighbor's stuff, house, wife, servant, maid, ox, donkey, most of us don't have donkeys, get the point though, don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's. And then Jesus comes along later and says, oh, by the way, if you have bitterness in your heart, you've committed murder. And uh, by the way, everyone, if you've looked at anyone lustfully in your life as you're walking down the street, you've committed adultery. How's everyone doing? And Paul comes along and says, you are under the power of that law until you die. 
But Paul then does not end with that grand statement, that burdensome statement, until you die. Paul gives hope by using an everyday example from his life and his culture to give us good news. So he talks about first century marriage. Verse 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has a sexual relationship with another man while her husband's alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, here's the point. Under Roman and Jewish law, a woman was bound to her husband for life. Now, we're not going to address the divorce and remarriage issue this morning at all. If you want to explore that, we did a series called The Big D, and you can listen to that in, in, from April and May of 2009. The point here is this. The husband, the wife, and the law regulated someone's life and behavior. He's pointing out the power of, a, of the law, the power of covenant, the power of agreement. As someone said, look, Paul simply wants to show that the death of something can actually bring freedom from the law and hints that that freedom could bring a new and more profound relationship. So then this is what Paul does. Catch this. Verse 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. See, our marriage, our ownership, Our life-sucking burden to and under the law was dissolved at our identification with the death of Jesus. When we became Christians, we enter into Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the symbol of baptism. And so as a result, we are now married to Jesus and we are not under the law. The law has no salvific claim over us at all. And then, and only then, does Paul then begin to outline our freedom. Out of this new relationship, this new freedom, we now get to actually bear fruit for God. Good works. Don't miss this, everyone. This is important. The law takes on a new role for us. We now obey the law as acts of love, not duty, not for salvation. Practical works of service flow out of a new relationship with Jesus. It doesn't get us the relationship. Now, after that summary, Paul then stops And he chooses to unpack his whole journey uh, to reflect on this summary in a few different ways. First, he reminds all of us here today of our time before Jesus, when we were lost. See, whether we were good or bad or in between, we were all marked by emptiness, depravity, and spiritual death before Jesus. Verse 5, for when we were in the realm of flesh, Paul writes, the sinful passions were aroused by the law and they were a work in us so that we bore the fruit of death. God gave the law, and it leads to two experiences. Please listen. The first was to expose our sin. God gives the law to confront us so we know that we're actually in trouble and we need a Savior. The law is given to actually drive us to repent and come and put our faith in the only one in human history that's dealt with sin. But the law does something else that most Christians never talk about anymore. The law also arouses us. It excites us. It moves us towards sinfulness. It actually moves us in the wrong direction away from God. Now, we'll get into this, but this shows that we could never save ourselves at all. At that moment, then he chooses to move us to a place he touched down again and again when you become a Christian. Verse 6. But now, by dying to what used to bound, bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in a new way. That's the way of the Spirit. 
and not the old way of the written code. Now, don't miss this today either. This is the most important verse in all of this chapter. We now serve, we now live in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of chapter 8, which we're going to spend two weeks on, is going to outline that amazing shared reality if you're a Christian. Don't forget this. Chapter 7 is a setup for chapter 8. But he is reminding us that only by the power of the Holy Spirit could we even live the life post-Jesus we're called to. Without God being within us, we will always end up falling and we will always end up doing more sin, not less. Now at this point, Paul, speaking to his audience, not us, realizes that many of his Jewish readers might really get angry at this point and misunderstand him again. They might start saying, well, Paul... You're teaching that the law, the thing that we love so much, is evil. Or that this grace thing is attacking God's very word and actually opposes what God taught us for thousands of years. Paul's going to stop and say, no, 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 listen to me carefully. I'm not saying that. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law is good, he says, and has and does serve a purpose. Without the law, we would never know, ready, the character of God. You can know a lot about God in nature. He's the author. He's an artist. He's an engineer, obviously. He's been able to resolve the engineer-artist debate. He's it. He is a brilliant, brilliant creator. He loves color. Like You can do all this, but you will never know the deep character of God without the law. We would never also know that we had sinned. We would never know that we need a Savior named Jesus without it. One illustrated it this way. Not long ago, many people didn't find out about cancer until too late. The first symptoms usually would lead to bad news from the doctor. Then someone invented a machine called an MRI, a marvelous machine that quickly and would accurately probe a patient's flesh and yield detailed images about our bodies. A trained eye could examine the image and locate cancerous tumors a long time before the patients would even give symptoms. Now, if an MRI machine leads to the diagnosis of cancer, the patient would be stupid or foolish to blame the machine for their illness. If anything, they would be thankful that maybe because the cancer was found, maybe treatment could be given. Maybe. In essence, this is what Paul is saying. I did not know that I was dying from a disease called sin until the law actually revealed my terminal condition. Furthermore, the law showed me that I actually loved my disease and I would do anything to keep my disease. I was like a living dead man. See, by pointing out the problem, the law demonstrates that I was living under a death sentence. Well, at this moment, Paul's not done. See, he chooses to unpack this issue further. He goes back to the law and now talks about how sin uses the law to actually make us sin more and more. Think about it this way. Have you ever seen a sign that says, do not walk or sit on the grass? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. What do you do? You walk on the grass. If you, if I decided to put up a sign in a window that says, do not use this rock to throw through that place glass window, what would happen? Just wait for the breaking glass. It's my daughter's every single day. Do not spit. Do not throw food. And then they smile. And they're waiting. And you watch the sinfulness in them. Sinfulness. And what do they do? At the same time. 
See, when you are given the law, our immediate sinful action is, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to sit on the grass. I don't care who you are. See, that is what Paul is about to say. When the law comes to us, it not only exposes our sin, it actually excites our sin. He uses Exodus 20 as his example. Don't covet. Verse 7. For I do not know, I would have not known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by that commandment, produced in me every type of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin is a powerful enemy who sets up a base within the soul of each human. And when like a snake waiting to strike, when it was exposed to the law, it lunges out and brings death. Chuck Swindoll, the brilliant guy who's into illustrations, like he's, he's the master at it, wrote it this way. Years ago, one of the first high-rise hotels to open in Galveston, Texas, sat actually right on the gulf. It was so close to the water, in fact, the owners worried about people fishing from the guest room balconies. The high winds and large lead sinkers and the first story window glass made a bad combination. And so the management gathered, had a meeting, and put up huge signs in each room. Absolutely no fishing from the balcony. What do you think happened? You guessed it. Guests in all the first story restaurants dined to the frequent smack of lead weights against the plate glass windows. Sometimes the glass literally cracked. Finally, people in the management had another meaning. Realizing their error made a very interesting decision. They removed all the signs, and guess what happened? No one ever fished from the balconies again. See, that's what Paul is saying. We can all relate to this. What we know is wrong, we end up doing, even as Jesus' followers. We are told no, and we want to say yes. It was St. Augustine in his amazing book, Confessions, now written over 1,400 years ago, please read it if you haven't, who talks about this experience in his life. It's old English, but listen carefully, it's good. He says, you know, there was a pear tree near our vineyard laden with fruit, and one stormy night, I love this, we rascally youths, in other words, punks in our modern vernacular, set out to rob it and carry some spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast on ourselves, by the way, but just to throw them to pigs, though we did eat enough of the fruit for, you know, the forbidden fruit excitement. They were nice pears, but they weren't the pears that my wretched soul coveted, for by the way, I had plenty of better pears at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of sin, and I enjoyed it to the full. What was it, uh, what was it he writes, that I loved about the theft thing? He says it was the desire to steal, because it was awakened simply by the rule You cannot steal. See, the law shows us our sin and our need for salvation, but sin hijacks the law to bring death and not life. Verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. This is actually an amazing throwback to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve, and also it's our stories and Paul's. As one wrote, Adam was not conscious of any sinful inclination until his obedience was tested by the commandment, you shall not, what? Eat. Paul understands the fall narrative all the better in the light of the general human experience and his own. He says in verse 10, I found that every command, command that was meant and intended to bring life It brought me death. The law reflects God himself. Never forget this. God did not wake up, as I've preached before, one day and just say, "Mm, I don't like murder. 
I don't like lying or stealing. The Ten Commandments are not separate from God. They are from his nature. He says no to murder because he's life. He hates stealing because he's a generous gift-giving God. He rejects adultery because he is the first covenant-keeping being in the universe. He says no to idols and other gods because he's truth and they're not. And so the law is given actually to give life. Everyone ready? And it does reflect God. But when we as human beings do not follow it perfectly, it only brings death. When it's hijacked for another purpose, the opposite always takes place. Verse 11, read with me. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandments deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what was good to bring about my death, so through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful." The word deceived here is the same word used in Genesis 3 between Lucifer and Eve. But as one pointed out, never forget the villain in this picture is sin. Sin seizes the opportunity afforded when the law came forward to show me what was right and wrong. But it never supplied the power to do the former and avoid the latter. Well, after all of that, where he brings us the summary of his life from not being a Christian to being condemned by the law to meeting Jesus, he brings us to another really interesting place, the heart of today. He just talks about a normal Christian life where victory and struggle are just part of normal Christianity. Many try to say that the below verses are about a brand new Christian or a carnal Christian who's really weak and hasn't got it all together yet. And others say actually these verses are about Paul before he was a Christian. I don't buy it. I just think they're wrong. This is Paul's experience. Ken Hughes, one great pastor, thought these words or wrote these words. In this self-portrait, Paul describes himself not as a so-called weak or carnal Christian, but one who actually loves the law of God. He longs to please God, but in trying to do so, he does it, ready, in his own strength. This is Paul's autobiography, but it is the experience of every Christian. Anyone who has seriously followed Jesus for a long time knows this is just reality. Just a little uh, reflection before we go on. Any one of us who have become Christians in this place or another place, right when we met Jesus, a Savior and Lord, something happened to us. It says that the Spirit of God came into us and gives us the ability to obey God, to love God, to love others. He seals us until Jesus' return. He gives us fruit that we can't invent, by the way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He even gives us spiritual gifts. But when he moves in, a huge new struggle begins between what he desires and what our old life that's dying desires. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. It's a good thing. But I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Anyone relate? For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. This is the cry of every believer who's trying but relying on themselves. St. Paul says, listen, I'd forgotten what I'd learned about the Spirit. Anyone who's followed Jesus for a long time reads these verses and says a huge amen. Thomas Akempis, the great Christian uh, writer from the medieval times, really summarized this well too. He wrote about this deep frustration he had trying to follow Jesus. He says, I desire to enjoy thee, God, inwardly, but I cannot take thee. 
I desire to cleave to heavenly things, but fleshly things and unfortified passions, they depress me. I will in my mind to be above all things, but in spite of myself, I'm constrained to be beneath. So I, an unhappy man, fight with myself and made grievous to myself, while the Spirit seeketh what is beneath. Oh, what I suffer within, while I think on heavenly things in my mind, and the company of fleshly things cometh against me when I pray. Modern translation, wow, this is a tough run. (laughs) Paul put it this way in verse 17. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know the good in itself does not dwell within me. That's my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, and I can't carry it out. For I, do, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I don't want to do, well, I just keep on doing it. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does. So I find this law at work in me. Although I do want to be good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. That's why you know this is Paul as a Christian. People who don't know Jesus do not delight in God's law in their inner being. But I see another law at work in me, waging war, the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within me. The truth is, this is like a drug or alcohol addiction. Any person sitting here today who has been a drug addict or an alcoholic, you know the key to lifelong sobriety is that you're in recovery for life. So the same here, truthfully, all of us have tried in our power, our own ability to follow Jesus, and we are always pulled down when we do that. As one said, every one of us is chronically addicted to sin. Long after we become Christians, our bodies crave what gives us short-term pleasure and long-term anguish. Paul said it this way in Galatians 5, For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, And the spirit, what's contrary to the flesh, they're in conflict with each other, so I don't know what I want to do. And this is a very helpful thing for us because then it helps us understand how Paul could say these next words. Because these next words are tough. They're scary. And if a lot of Christian leaders would get up and say this, we'd find some relief afterwards, but shock in the beginning. This is what Paul says, the great theologian, the one beaten for Jesus. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? This isn't an abstract argument. This isn't pie in the sky, some ivory tower statement. This is as one pen, an echo of a personal experience of an anguished soul. Wretched means suffering, afflicted, miserable. How many of us, honestly, in our heads... Or out loud have said, I am such a failure as a Christian. I'm such such a sucky Christian. This is so bad. Maybe I should just give up or, or play the game or just pretend and see if anyone catches me. But Paul then handles himself in a profound way. Because he turns around and he looks beyond himself, understanding that he is wretched, even as a profound follower. And then he says, I'm going to look back at Jesus. Thanks be to God, verse 25, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, and in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now, let me unpack why this matters for us this morning. And, and please, don't tune, tune out. Listen closely. In our journey today, Paul moved us, if you caught it or not, from a lost person to a justified person to a growing person to a struggling person. And the reason why this passage is so needed for our community is a few thoughts here. This is the honest truth about the Christian life. 
Many of us have given up or do give up. Or we listen to lies or we walk away from Jesus and his people because we have invented what we think a normal Christian life is and it is not grounded in Scripture. It is grounded in something else. And when the expectations are too high or they're higher than Paul, let alone Jesus, guess what? I can tell you you're going to fail. And then we turn around and say, God, you didn't show up. Or this is just too difficult. And we miss the whole point. One wrote, there are a lot of Christian teachers and pastors who teach Romans 7. It's only something that happens in a Christian life maybe once or twice, like a midlife crisis spiritually. But then they get out of it and they move on to chapter 8 and never come back. But nothing could be further from the truth. Even a mighty man as Paul went through this again and again. This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in their experience because sin still has the power to deceive us and cause us, here it is, ready, to trust in our own ability. Even when we don't know we're doing that. The law then will expose what we're doing, drive us back to the place of wretchedness, so then we might in devotion to spirit cry out again, Lord Jesus... This is your problem. I can't handle it. You need to empower me. Understand this again. Paul's point here is not only to relieve us and show us that struggle is normal. He is driving home the point that the greatest temptation for Christians is to try in our own power to live a Christian life. And that brings us to the second point. So then what is the role of God's law for us now? Do we get to live a Christian life without following any commands? Is it just sort of, I've got fire insurance, I'm in, now let's go party? No. The law, our spiritual disciplines, all the actions we do, never to get salvation, never to impress God, they are acts of love now given to God because he loved us first. And verse 6 is the key to this. We serve in a new way of the Spirit. We can only, hear this please, we can only obey God through the power of God. As one pastor wrote, God never demands you to be perfect. And then he puts in brackets, read that aloud again. How about we all say it? God, no people, come on. God never demands perfection. See, that untainted morality vanished with Eden. We're not saved by grace and then we get really holy the rest of our lives by what we do. The work of grace is not half done. The point of Paul's miserable self-portrait here is to demonstrate that even redeemed humanity can no more purify itself of sin before salvation, let alone after. Only God can do this work. So what's the duty of believers saved by grace, he writes? Well, our primary purpose is to know Jesus with a deepening intimacy. If you read the Bible, if you pray, if you meditate, if you journal, if you fast, do it just to know his mind. If we worship, serve, take communion, spend time with other Christians, let us learn about him through his transforming work in others. If we feed the poor, defend uh, the weak, comfort the lonely, we go out and evangelize, proclaim the gospel to a broken and needy world, let our walking in his sandals give us firsthand knowledge of his character. The spiritual disciplines, listen please, are never a means of holiness. Can I say that again? The spiritual disciplines are never a means of holiness. The spiritual disciplines put us in the place to meet the living God. So we have contact with Him. They are vehicles. That's all they are. 
They are only means to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit will do what he can only do. As one wrote, as the moon reflects the light of the sun, yet has no light of its own, so we will shine with God's radiance as we live in proximity to his son. And then he writes rightly, now that's a worthy purpose, amen? The first point is this. This is a portrait of a normal Christian life. Abandon all others that you have. They will lead to failure. Number two, understand that the role of the law changes for us. It still is active and we still need to obey God. We do it out of love. But understand, all of our obedience, all our spiritual disciplines are only now acts of love. Not duty and not to impress him. And they place us in his presence. But here's the last thing. And it's so important to hear this today. Take hope from this passage, but do not let your own soul or Satan use this to become an excuse to sin. All of us at this moment should be saying, thank God. I'm not alone. I'm a Christian loved by God, still able to be used by God, even though sometimes I fall into the trap of trying to follow God by my own strength. But this is a big but. Do not use the Bible as an excuse. Yes, there's hope in knowing struggle is part of the journey, but it can never become an excuse like, well, you know, I keep struggling with sin, John, and yes, I keep giving in all the time, but that's okay. Paul did it, so I can do it too. That's not the point here. We should never regard sins we commit with complacency. They're not supposed to be there in the first place. God hates sin, and he has given us, ready? And he has given us power to get rid of them. The reason why, over the last three years, myself and Dave and Wayne and Joanne and all those who have spoken, continually reference back to the power of the Holy Spirit is this. We as a congregation do not have a good theology of the Spirit yet. We still keep buying into the idea that we get to live the Christian life without an intimate walk with the third person of the Trinity. I remind you, Jesus never did anything miraculous, before he was baptized in the Spirit. I remind you that every single time God does something profound through humans, the Spirit is present. The church was born when the Spirit came. We we were saved and we were baptized in the Spirit at conversion, but we need to keep going back to him again and again. I need to forgive someone, so what do I pray? Spirit of God, give me an ability I will never be able to invent myself. That's how you obey. God, I want to go and commit all sorts of indecent acts. Give me the ability, Holy Spirit, that I would not have and you have to give it to me. That is Paul's point. We will always fail when we refuse to call on the Spirit of God and we end up relying on ourselves. It's always God-oriented. Salvation is God-oriented. Sanctification is God-oriented. Death is God-oriented. Resurrection is God-oriented. And Paul comes and says, oh, Christian, hear this today. You're struggling. You're in good company. Number two, abandon all the stuff you think about super-Christians. It's just not true. Number three, obey the law and follow with all diligence, but do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second you rely on yourself, you will become complacent, bitter, angry, disconnected. You will give into all sorts of things. Why? Because you thought that you were God, and you're not. Romans 7 is given to us as a community today to give us hope. Because when we see reality and not presumption, there's not death, but there's life. Let's pray. Jesus of Nazareth, the same one who encountered Paul, the same one who loves us deeply, the same one who called us and saved us and keeps doing this stuff in our lives and 
Same Jesus talking to many of us in our community too who don't know you yet, but they're wrestling with you. We just, my prayer for myself and us is a few things. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, now come among certain people and actually show them that they've invented idols in their heads about what the Christian life should be and set them free. I pray for freedom in Jesus' name from wrong, ungodly, unbiblical expectations of themselves or others. I also pray in Jesus' name that this community, including myself, would follow even harder after God and love the law and want to obey the things of God and not be like the world, but be in it. But my grandest prayer is that would all be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you're the third person of the Trinity. You showed us Jesus, and Jesus revealed the Father. Holy Spirit, we ask you to empower us, make us more like Jesus. Only you can do this. And so my prayer is that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control would replace all other things. Come, Holy Spirit, and do your work in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.